Well, as I mentioned earlier on in the service last week, we finished out our series on the book of Jonah. Boy, what a challenging series that was. Well, as we prepare for this time that's leading up to Easter, I thought it would be really appropriate for us to look at the life of Jesus. So for the next following weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter, we are going to be taking some time to specifically look at the life of Jesus, a wonderful person of history who has inspired many, whether Christian or not, to consider his teachings Consider his acts and the way that he lived well. And we're going to be doing that in John chapter 2 today as we look at the first miracle of Jesus' public ministry. So we're going to be in John chapter 2 today. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open up there. But before we go and read God's word, I'd like for you to join me in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we get to gather under one roof together. I know I'm always reminded about this, that the church is not just a building, but it's a people. And Lord, we see ourselves as your people. And as your people, I pray, Father, that you would feed us today, that you would meet us wherever we are at, Lord. I know that, Lord, for many of us, we come in very different Some of us are riding the crest of a good week, and others of us are maybe in a lower valley. But wherever we are, Lord, we come to you to look to you as the author, the sustainer of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this season where we get to think about the life that you lived and how that ought to change the lives that we live. So I pray, Father, that as we read your word today, that you would encourage us, that you would shape us, that we would leave here a little bit different than we came. Father, hopefully a little lighter and a little just more just invested in in your word and in your truth, Father. We thank you so much for the things that you do in our lives. And as I've often prayed, Father, give us eyes to see the things that you are doing and ears to hear the words you are speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, or pardon me, so John chapter 2 verse 1 starts off rather interesting. And in some ways it wouldn't be what you would think would be a normal biblical story, but it is. And it says, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Now, we'll stop right there. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love weddings. In fact, I used to jokingly tell people that one of the reasons why I became a pastor is just so that I can attend more weddings and hopefully maybe participate in those weddings. So it's been a wonderful blessing for me through the years to be able to officiate a couple of weddings and uh, to have that role and to just be a part of these gatherings of people to becoming one. What a beautiful thing. And I, of course, every time I officiate, 
officiate a wedding or attend a wedding, I think about my own wedding that I had. And uh, if you didn't know, my wife and I, we just celebrated 10 years of marriage this past November. And it, was, it felt like a big milestone for us, although I know some of you uh, are well past that and you have us pretty well beat. Uh, and just out of curiosity, anybody been married here for more than 20 years? Raise your hand if, if that includes you. Uh, keep your hand up if, if it still applies, and you can put it down if it doesn't. Uh, 30 years. Roger, I missed your comment, but I'm guessing it was a funny one. To the same person, yes, yes. <laughs> 20 years, okay, 30 years. I don't, did any hands go down? Wow. 40 years? Okay, a few of you went down, but not many. 50? Oh my goodness. Okay, now I think I need to go 55. All right, a few went down. Uh, all right, how long have you been married? 58 years. And Leonard? 55 years. So you are the winner of our congregation today. Congratulations. Uh, we have cupcakes in the back later on in the service. <laughs> well, when I first... Oh, what? Oh. 60 years, sorry, the cupcakes go to the Coopers. All right, well, that's an amen and a congratulations. I, I hope to make it to 60 years of marriage, but I don't know if I want to be alive that long at the same time, too. <laughs> um, well, I remember when I got married, and, uh, I, and I specifically remember when I asked my wife to marry me. Uh, that was a very intimidating day. And I remember my wife asking me, why were you so scared to ask me to marry you? You knew I was going to say yes, right? And I said, yes, but that does not take away from how nervous I was. And as a youth pastor, I would oftentimes tell my students, there's probably two questions that will be the most important questions that you will ever ask or be asked. And the first one is, will you marry me? And the second one is, will you follow Christ? And both of those questions will change your life one for all eternity. And I think that is true, and I think that's why we, especially as, 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 as men, that if, if you're the one asking uh, your woman to marry you, you feel that weight. And so I remember I had planned everything out uh, that day that I was going to propose for my wife. We were going to go up on a private little airplane. We were going to have nice dinner. We were going to do all these wonderful things. And I'm sure you're thinking, how in the world did you afford all that? I paid 80 bucks that day for all of those things. Uh, so there's a, a larger story that I could share after the service on how that happened. But I remember specifically taking her out to dinner that night. And while we were at the restaurant, I had let the whole entire restaurant know that I was going to be proposing that day so that they would seat us in the right spot, somewhere cozy and uh, somewhere where it would go well. And a coworker of mine at church had said, you should really announce to the whole entire restaurant you're doing that, which was not a good idea for a shyer person like myself in this moment that was afraid and nervous of what was going to happen next. So during the dinner, I'm not realizing it, but I prepared a speech, and I'm looking at her, and I'm going like this. 
and I'm mouthing out my speech in my head, and I'm not even really listening to anything that she is saying, and I just keep on mouthing out the words, and she keeps on going, are you trying to say something? So every time she does that, I give her a hug, and I just hold her, and I'm just, I love you. <laughs> and that carries on for two or three more times to where it dawns upon me, man, if I don't say something now, this is not going to happen. So like a rocket blasting off, I shoot out of my seat, and she's like, what is going on? And I go, ladies and gentlemen, I have a question to ask this young lady. And every single word I prepare goes out the window, and I'm just like, uh, yeah, uh, will you marry me? <laughs> And thankfully, she said yes. And I'm sure she would have loved to have heard this story now, but she's at home, unfortunately. Our little ones are sick today. Uh, we had a what felt like a really nice long stretch of not getting sick, but that changed this morning. So, um, But I remember that moment so clearly, and maybe you remember your stories uh, as well. Because weddings are wonderful things. They're beautiful things to be able to enjoy and just appreciate because it is truly a joyous occasion for two people to dedicate their lives to one another and as scripture tells us, to become one flesh. So in John chapter 2, we find ourselves in a wedding story, something that you might not think can happen in scripture, at least happen in the life and ministry of Jesus, but yet this wedding story marks the first miracle that Jesus would publicly perform in the beginning of his ministry. So as I read to you, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. If you didn't know, the region of Cana is in northern Israel. It's in the western hills. So Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, this is pretty neat that Jesus is at a wedding, and, and if you didn't know, weddings were a little different back then than they are today. There's certain things that are totally similar that we can relate to and other things that aren't so much. Well, in their time period, there were few things that were as largely celebrated as a wedding. It was either whatever Jewish holidays and a wedding. And those were typically the biggest events of the year for people to gather together and celebrate. So for that reason, because so many people would have to travel many miles in order to have a celebration, it wasn't like you just hopped onto the Camel Express. Um, you would have to walk there, and maybe you traveled by animal, but that's about as good as it got. You would go to a, a, a wedding celebration in that time period for the celebration would typically last a week. Now, I don't know about you, but a week can be a long time to be able to play host and party guest and to hang out with some of our family members, which I know that might feel like torture for some of you. But this is what that time period would have looked like. So it was important for the families to be able to prepare in some ways for these festivities. And in fact, it was such an exciting time and very unlike our own time where when the bride and groom were ready to be wed, 
it was a little bit mysterious. In fact, what would oftentimes happen is the groom would go away to his own father's house and he would prepare a room there in his father's house. He would most likely make an apartment that was attached to his father's home to be the residence in which he would call his wife to live with him. So eventually what would end up happening is the groom would complete his work and then gather his groomsmen together and go about through the city announcing that the wedding time had come. And when this happened, the bride in some ways needed to be prepared for the groom to come at any moment. And they would get married together and there would be that week-long celebration and it would be such an exciting time. And if that sounds similar to what, how Jesus describes his second coming, well then there's a reason for that. Because you see, weddings were oftentimes a picture of heaven within Jewish culture. And it's why Jesus in many different lines of scripture oftentimes compares his role to what? To that of a groomsman. I'm going away to prepare a room for you. My father's house has many rooms. I will come at a time, but you need to be ready. All these things that we see in scripture are in some ways this picture of how a wedding would have operated within their time. I don't know about you ladies, but maybe you like to save the date. I'm not sure how you would feel about a groomsman just popping up at any time, but that's just how it worked back then. So when Jesus is here at this wedding, something terrible happens. And at least this would have been a a terrible thing for them. And that is in verse 3, it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And then I just imagine someone going, Dum, dum, dum. Now, of course, if you were in a Baptist church, this is the first miracle of Jesus turning the water into grape juice, I mean, to wine, Uh, but we'll find out what happens next. You see, because the families needed to prepare and have enough food, there was, in some ways, shame at this point that could be brought. You see, this wasn't just wine being uh, uh, wine being finished out. This was family, family reputation in some ways being finished out. Because if you couldn't host all the people for this gathering, it could potentially bring shame on your own family. That you were not prepared enough to be able to host this festivity. So the fact that the wine ran out was a bigger deal than we realize. It would have been a moment of panic and shame, and you can't just head over to your Costco to take care of it. So this was, at least for the bridegroom and the the groom's family, a significant point of contention, of problem, of issues, And I want to make a point here that the wine 
in this story is going to mean more than just fermented grape juice. But I think God is allowing these moments to happen in order to teach us something very important that I think ties strongly with the message of Scripture. So it says in Scripture that when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, specifically Jesus' mother Mary talking to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now, Bible scholars don't really know why it is that Jesus' mother decided to take interest in this moment and tell Jesus of this issue. Nobody's really certain about that. But I like to think, and I could be wrong, but I like to think that maybe Jesus' mother cared about this because maybe while she was at this wedding, she thought about her own wedding, or lack thereof. And maybe she thought about all the shame that surrounded her life when she became pregnant and the world around her decided to judge her for that, even though what was inside of her, as we all know, was a miracle of God. So I almost wonder if she thought about the shame that she experienced And if she cared and loved people enough to say, I don't want others to go through the shame that I went through. That's just a theory of mine, but I could be wrong. I could be right. But it kind of causes me to wonder, how do I love people? Do I love people enough that I want them to not experience the shames that maybe I have gone through in life? You know, one of the beautiful things about having a congregation with a few more gray heads than maybe some other congregations is, guess what, all the young people in this congregation, we hopefully have many people that can offer us wisdom. So I want to encourage you, if you are older in your years or if you've gone through something in life that you feel like is an experience worth sharing, that you look for ways to be able to encourage the younger people with some of that wisdom that you have, to be able to bless others through the knowledge and experience of your own life so that the younger generation can can benefit from the things that you've learned. Because I know for many of you, some of those lessons came through really, really hard times. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to love somebody enough to share those lessons with others so that they hopefully won't repeat some of the hardships that you've had to go through in your life. So just a little sermon and a sermon right there. But what happens next, I think, is incredibly interesting. And scripture continues there that it says that Jesus says this specifically, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Now, I don't know about any of you moms out there, but would you like it if your son called you woman? Woman, why do you involve me? That's how I read it when I, when I see that, with a little bit of just kind of, yeah. Well, if you didn't know, what Jesus follows up by saying here is, is my hour has not yet come. So in their time period, saying women like that would have been similar to us saying ma'am. Okay, a little better now? <laughs> 
So it would have been like Jesus formally talking to his mother and saying, ma'am. But the importance here is not that Jesus disrespects his mother because he doesn't, but is that Jesus is trying to help his mom see that even though he is one to honor his father and his mother, that ultimately his authority in the way that he lives is to God. Do you hear me there? You see, oftentimes, especially in youth settings, kids will ask, well, what does honor my father and mother really mean? Okay, nobody's around, Pastor Kevin. Tell me the truth. You see, we are to honor our parents. We are to honor authority. We are to honor the government. We are to honor all of these institutions, so to speak, that try to direct our lives. However, if at any time those institutions try to call us to do something that is against what we believe God is calling us to, well then where does the ultimate authority lie? With God. It's why so often in the Bible we are reminded that God is the ultimate authority in life. And in Jesus is, is, is doing that in some way. He's reminding his mother that I appreciate your request, mom, but remember this that my hour has not yet come. That my, my willingness to perform a miracle and to do the things that God has called me to is ultimately dependent upon him and not ultimately dependent upon you. And I think that's really good for us to know that. That our ultimate authority in life is not Pastor Kevin. It's not one of the elders. It's not even your own boss, although I say this with a grain of salt, okay? Be wise in how you treat these things. These, these people, for instance, that God has put a, uh, or has allowed to be a before you, but that our ultimate authority is who? To God. So the easy answer there is if there's ever a time where you have to violate what God's law says and what you believe you ought to do, then you choose the path of faith and of what you believe is God's truth over and above whatever someone else might be telling you to do. Amen? And that's hard to do at times, right? So Jesus tells this to his mother, to remind her that God is the ultimate authority. And I want this to be a clear message for all of us to hear today, that God is our ultimate authority. But yet what's amazing about this story is that what will eventually end up happening is that, is that Jesus will involve himself in this situation, which I think shows us that God cares for all the areas and needs in our lives, even the simple struggles. You know, one of the sad things that I experience as a pastor is I will oftentimes visit with people that for whatever reason, they can't 
see themselves as important in the eyes of God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have struggles like that where we devalue ourselves and we're, we, maybe we look at the mistakes that we've made or we look at other people who we feel have lived better lives than us and we think, well, you know, who am I to ask God for anything? Or God doesn't really think of me as somebody important. And maybe you don't say those words out loud, but functionally you live those words. And what I love about this story is is it shows that God cares about things, even our simple, little struggles that we go through, which should encourage us to form habits that problems big or small are worth going to God. Yet unfortunately, I think many of us only go to God when the problems are really big. When in reality, we can go to God for every single one of our needs. Even a lawnmower. (laughs) For those of you that might be listening to the podcast, I gave thanks to God for getting me a lawnmower this week. (laughs) And that is a beautiful thing about our faith. That God is so approachable. Now, the way that God ends up working in our lives might be different than how we desire, how we plan. I mean, we've all been faced with that, right? Where we ask the Lord for something and the result is different than what we maybe hoped for, but it doesn't make it any less good. And so often, time often uh, time usually will afford us perspective where we can look back at our, at our situation and say you know what in the moment that didn't feel like it was for God's glory but now that I see time has gone by I can now see that it was for God's glory I've shared with you guys a number of times some of the physical ailments that I had to go through and that when I was 19 I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis well for me that was a very big struggle in my life for many 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 years and i remember having to leave a position in ministry because of it and it made no sense to me and i remember my prayers at that time were lord i'm trying to serve you i'm trying to serve your church i've I quit the college I was going to to attend a local university in a total different state in order to serve you better, in order to learn under these men and women that you, are, I believe, are calling me to, to, to lead and to become a pastor. Why would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen in my life? Well, now as the chapters of my life have have lengthened, I can look back to that moment and say, hmm, okay, God wanted me to learn some things that I wasn't going to learn at that church, that I needed to learn through the experience of hardship and of dependency on God. And I think we've all had moments like that, have we not? Where God might change 
our expectations of what we think is good. And it takes time for us to see the good. Right? Because here's the truth, right? Do you think God knew that they were going to run out of wine? I think so. Probably. But yet, what happens? The situation develops where Jesus can either do a miracle and make some water into wine, or he cannot do a miracle. But if Jesus knew, and if God knew that they were going to run out of wine, couldn't have they just brought wine with them? Right? Couldn't maybe Jesus have sent a, 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 what would you call a telegram in that day? I don't know. To let them know, hey, you better double up on your wine? No. So it's interesting because I think God still oftentimes allows us to go through things even though he knows we're going to go through those things. But we need to use these moments as an opportunity to do what? To continue to press into God and let our requests be known to him. So let's continue. Verse 5. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. So she's pretty confident that Jesus is going to do something here. And it says this. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So we don't know the exact amount of water that was there that was turned to wine, but it's probably safe to assume that there was around 120 gallons of wine. So just to do some basic math here, that's 605 bottles of wine that Jesus converted here from water. Now I think that's pretty cool that he did that. But what's more interesting is what were the vessels of water that Jesus asked to be brought forth? Specifically in verse 6, it says what? That there stood by six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing. So you see, these water jars that existed would oftentimes be used for just that, to be filled with water, and then people would take the water out of those jars to be able to cleanse themselves. Because you see, in their culture, if you were not clean, you couldn't have fellowship with one another, let alone in some ways you could not have fellowship with God. You would have to refrain from the temple, which is why 
why so many of Jesus' miracles are based around what? Helping people who were unclean become clean. And those miracles of God are miracles for that because it in some ways affords people the opportunity to do what? To be brought back into fellowship of community and fellowship with God. But you see, I believe that there is something more that Jesus is trying to show the people around him. Because these waters that were meant for purification are turned into what? Turned into wine. And as we will read eventually through scripture, what does Jesus take during the Last Supper to symbolize the washing and cleansing of sins. He takes what we have over here. Probably grape juice, but wine. (laughs) He takes wine and he says what? This is my blood. That represents the new covenant. The forgiveness of our sins. Thank you God for not letting me drop that like I did last time. (laughs) Jesus in some ways you could say is giving them the picture of what his ministry will do. You see the beauty of Jesus in his act on the cross and more notably the resurrection is that up until he did what he did we can only clean ourselves from the outside but what did jesus want to do for all people that would believe in him he wanted to clean us from the inside amen so isn't it interesting that the vessel meant to clean oneself from the outside becomes the miracle of God that goes now into the inside. And that we would later see represents the blood of Jesus. You see, church, I believe with all of my heart that the gospel message is one of hope. It's one that reminds us that God wants to transform us from the inside out. Because you see, too many people, even in our day and age, only care about what's on the outside. But God cares about what's not just on the outside, but what is on the inside. You see, there is nobody here who cannot be cleansed by God, who cannot experience the feeling of your sins being wiped clean. You know, maybe when you were a kid, you had those beautiful little white knob dials in that toy called an etchy sketch. God's work is like taking those etchy sketches and shaking them. And offering an ability for us to have a new slate, a new beginning. 
And I think that this miracle in some ways was the perfect miracle for his ministry to be pronounced. That his ministry would not be a ministry of outward cleansing, but a ministry of inward cleansing. That's something that we still need today. And Jesus' timing is perfect for that. And it's perfect for us to hear that today. Amen? Jesus changes us from the inside out. That's the truth. That's the reminder. That's the hope. We can't do it, but he can. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you care for us that you would even care for a couple that is celebrating a joyous time like a wedding. That you would perform a miracle in their lives to meet a need that they had. And God, I believe that you continue to do that in our lives. Sometimes it looks different than we expected and sometimes the timing is also different than we expected or expect. But Father, I thank you that your ministry is not one of judgment. It's not even one of trying to condemn. But rather, Lord, that your ministry is marked by grace. It's marked by the ever-present reminders that, yes, we are fallen. Yes, we have done evil. Yes, there are things that we have done that have harmed others harmed ourselves and harmed you but that ultimately your love is so great that you restore to us relationship with you through the cleansing of your blood and you change us from the inside out I pray Lord that if there is anybody here today that is feeling the weight of that in their life that maybe they have felt like they needed to be cleansed, Lord, that you would remind them of your work, that you love us. We thank you for this work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.